Welcome to Hill Law Firm Cases, a podcast discussing real-world cases handled by Justin Hill and the Hill Law Firm. For confidentiality reasons, names and amounts of any settlements have been removed. However, the facts are real, and these are the cases we handle on a day-to-day basis. All right, welcome to Hill Law Firm Cases Podcast. Today, I've got Damon Garza with me. Damon is a lawyer in San Antonio, a friend, and he's also a lawyer that we work with on some cases. He is the current president of the San Antonio Trial Lawyers Association, and his reign ends tomorrow, right? Uh, I think officially on the 21st, actually. He's also a stickler for technicalities, uh, (laughs) as you will learn. Uh, I asked Damon to come on and talk about... um, practicing law. Really, the point of these has kind of been younger lawyers. Uh, That's kind of been the thought process. And that's sort of been the response from people. So um, when I tell you who will respond about you being on here, then you'll understand you'll be like, okay, I understand your audience now. Uh, You're not the first Satla president I've had on though. Okay, that makes me a little second less special feeling, but that's okay. First loser. I mean, I think that's (laughs) what they say in that one show. Uh, Javier was on. Okay. I think he's the only one that would have been Satla president. Uh, Bill Marler was on. There's been books written about him. Michael Watts was on. He's been indicted and has a book and movie coming out. No books or movies based on me yet, unfortunately. Indictments? Or fortunately. No indictments that I'm currently aware of. Right, well, I think you would know. Uh, what is Satla? Satla is uh, a local trial lawyers association that is comprised of a little bit over 400 members these days. Uh, primarily lawyers here in the Bear County area, but um, uh, we have a good contingency out of South Texas, and we have members really spread as far as uh, Alaska even um, because it's a group of lawyers who represent folks, who represent people against companies, um, organizations, insurance companies who tend to have a lot more power and uh, influence in the courts, and so we represent those folks against those powerful folks whenever they've suffered a loss, injury, death, economic loss, something like that. And um, we put our minds together to share information, to help each of us um, better represent our clients. Um, the, the folks who usually defend injury cases um, have large organizations. They share information to help um, strengthen their defenses and so we try to pool our resources to better combat against those forces who, who would otherwise deny the availability of the courts to regular people who've suffered a loss. And San Antonio Trial Lawyers Association is not limited to San Antonio lawyers. We have, I think there used to even be an Alaska person. We've got it. We still have a very active member uh, from the state of Alaska. We've got people from the East Coast, the Midwest, uh, the Southeast, and kind of everywhere far flung in between. And a very robust uh, idea and document sharing through our listserv. But the rules are just lawyer and do not regularly represent insurance companies. Is, is that basically the breakdown? More or less. Yeah, you have to be a lawyer who represents people for the most part. But the, the biggest thing is you cannot represent insurance companies or uh, any kind of corporation or governmental entity regularly. And to get in, they apply, they have to have multiple people that vouch for them, pay their dues, which are really not bad. Our, our dues are actually significantly lower than a lot of other trial, orga, trial lawyer organizations that do what we do, uh, and that's intentional. We don't want it to be 
exclusive um, only for lawyers who make money over a certain amount or who can afford a certain uh, entry point uh, from a cost perspective. We want it to be open to virtually all lawyers who do what we do because we believe that uh, you know a high tide rises all boats, raises all boats. And so our whole thing is get the information out to folks who represent folks like we do and uh, it will be better for everybody in our industry because when, when those people are represented well and the right results are coming out of the courthouse, it helps all of our clients. And our San Antonio Trial Lawyer Association's listserv was kind of the model for Texas Trial Lawyers Association listserv. So we were kind of a, ahead of the curve long before you and our lawyers probably. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's that listserv is such a great resource and one of the main reasons why a lot of folks – who don't live or practice in Bear County, or at least in Texas, still maintain their membership with us is because our members are really good about sharing that stuff. And it's super helpful, especially for young lawyers or folks who are striking out on their own, hanging a shingle, as it were, because it becomes sort of like a virtual law firm where lawyers who have more skins on the wall, a lot more years under practice under their belt, are willing to share their ideas, their thoughts, their forms, their documents, um, transcripts of folks that you might be having to cross-examine. Um, they'll even volunteer to, you know, kind of do some feedback on your cases. Um, and it's it's all stuff that people volunteer without any expectation of return, other than the hope that when you one day have material that could benefit another member, that you will also be willing to pay it forward and share your stuff. So to become San Antonio Trial Lawyer President, you've been in for a while, you've been on the board, you've held some positions, Sort of what is your uh, lawyer history? So when I graduated law school, um, I initially started doing, uh, I guess what you would call insurance defense work. I went for, to work for a defense firm based here in San Antonio that I had clerked for in law school. And after about a year there, um, I, or about a year or so after I got my license, should I say, um, I decided to uh, to leave there and go work for another San Antonio-based defense firm who specialized more on products liability defense. We represented, uh, you know, some of the largest companies uh, in the world who manufacture automobiles, watercraft, um, things like that, um, you know, farm equipment and what have you. And uh, I was there doing mostly products liability defense work for about five years with a little bit of insurance defense work sprinkled in that. And then sometime around the six-year mark of being licensed or so, uh, I decided to come over to the side of the, the good and the right and, uh, and represent individuals doing plaintiff's work. And that was about 10 or so years ago. You went to work for a plaintiff shop in the south side of San Antonio. You also are a disciple of Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyers College, which has kind of a cult following. What is that? What, what, is, what's the, what is the science and thought process behind Trial Lawyers College? Sure. So um, Jerry Spence, for those of you who are um, not indoctrinated into uh, his sort of um, mystique, as it were, um, is largely regarded by many folks as the best or the greatest trial lawyer that America has ever known. He has a, a long track record, both in um, civil cases like I do now, and also um, in criminal cases as well, um, trying cases uh, all across the country, some of which were very, very widely covered by the media, um, especially back in the day. 
and he is a lawyer for the people. That was his. That was his thing. Is he wanted to help folks uh, fight against those who had more power, um, namely the government and large corporations, and defend our individual rights. And so, um, when he really started to gather a lot of notoriety for his talent and his skills, uh, he bonded together with other notable trial lawyers, many of whom were from Texas, um, uh, you know, but around the country, and said, look, they, you know, these, these insurance companies and these um, defense entities, uh, you know, these groups that were, you know, put together by large companies to try and help um, themselves insulate themselves from liability for their wrongdoing are holding these seminars and they're teaching these defense lawyers um, all these tactics and methods to, um, you know, basically prevent our clients from getting what their just due is. And we need to create a college or a school for lawyers for the people. We want to train lawyers in the best ways to approach their cases and ultimately to try their cases to give regular people a more even footing in the courthouse. And we need to do it in a way that doesn't make those lawyers beholden to anybody. Um, there were, when they were trying to put together this idea of the college, there were some companies who came forward and said, hey, we'll be your corporate sponsor. We will fund this college that you're trying to put together. But Jerry and the others who helped him put it together knew that whenever there's money being given, there's oftentimes strings attached and they didn't want to be beholden to anybody. So they created this organization that is run entirely on um, donations uh, from individuals. And um, it's it's all raised and, and run almost entirely by volunteers. There are, I believe, only at the time that I was last aware, only three or four full-time employees of the college. And then everybody else who works for it, including the board and all the instructors, are lawyers who just volunteer their time. And um, the idea was they were trying to teach lawyers to be better lawyers, but their their concept was that to be a better lawyer, you first had to be a better person, a better, the better, best version of yourself. And so uh, Jerry and uh, a few of the other guys that he helped found the college with teamed up with a, a world-renowned psychologist whose last name was Moreno. And he, uh, I believe, was based out of New York. And they um, knew that he was using um, a tactic or a strategy or a type of, um, I guess you'd call it therapy, um, in which lawyers or folks who were using it for therapeutic purposes would get together and they would use this psychodrama technique to sort of delve into what's going on with folks um, on, a, on a deeper level to understand their, their motivations, to understand um, why they do some of the things they do. And they decided to adapt that methodology for use in delving into a, a legal case and determining the individuals involves true motivations, their true feelings, exactly maybe what really went down on a given incident. And then you could mine that for information to use in your case. And prior to being able to use those techniques or those strategies 
in a legal case, you first learn the skills or the techniques by using them on yourselves. And that's where uh, Jerry and, and, and all of the other faculty talk about um, becoming a, a better version of yourself. If you use these techniques to delve into your personal life and the issues that you're struggling with, because we're all human, we're all fallible, we all have um, shortcomings, we all have baggage um, from our life experiences. And if we stop ignoring those things, but actually take a really hard look at them, um, we can hopefully become, you know, happier, better people. We can, you know, work on our things that maybe um, need to be worked on personally. And when we get to a better place personally, we can then be a better lawyer for our clients. And, and those tools and those techniques are kind of fungible across both personal lines and professional lines when it comes to working with clients on a case. They do small seminars, but you actually went and did the holy shit package three weeks in Montana. It used to be once a year, but now they do twice a year, I think. Yeah, so it's it's actually based in Wyoming, mm. uh, and it is it's it used. Is there to much be, of a difference? Wyoming, Montana. <laughs> I mean. Stickler for detail. Right? Yeah, exactly. So um, it is. It's about a three and a half week course now. I think it originally was a was a full four weeks, but they've tr tr shortened it down to about three and a half. Um, I did one of the small regional uh, events first, which is the ones they do kind of in local areas spread out around the country several times a year, which is just a long weekend. It's like a four-day, uh, three-and-a-half-day deal. And that uh, sort of wet my beak for the possibilities of what the program can offer. So then I signed up for the full college up in Wyoming, and it is, uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's down in a river valley in the middle of some mountains in the middle of uh, Wyoming. And the campus was set up on um, Jerry's actually family ranch. He purchased what used to be the double diamond uh, cattle ranch, which at the time, I think in the early 1900s, may have been the largest cattle operation in the country uh, for a period of time. And he bought this ranch, uh, you know, years and years prior. And um, what he did was he carved out a, a small piece that uh, he donated to the college uh, under a, a lease that said as long as they could, uh, maintained a trial lawyer's college there as a nonprofit, they would continue to have the opportunity to use the property. Um, I believe he carved off a couple little pieces for uh, – his children. I'm not sure if he retained any for himself. And then he donated the um, overwhelming majority of it back to the Shoshone um, native tribe that used to live on those lands mm. generations ago. And so um, this, this campus was in the middle of this river valley down below these mountains. And so there was virtually no cell signal. They didn't offer us internet. And the idea is for the three and a half weeks that you were there, you're disconnected from your job and your family um, so that you can focus on working on yourself as a person and as a lawyer, and you're not constantly distracted by all the, you know, bells and whistles coming off of your phone and your iPad and your laptop and everything else. And so it's a super intensive three and a half weeks. So all the the stories I heard about it, I thought it was kind of gobbledygook. I mean, it was touchy feely and uh, some of the stories. You know, everybody likes it. Some people like it more. Uh, somebody in particular had a discussion with me, and it was like wild stories of things people uh, admit to in y'all's sessions. Uh, but I had you come and help me prepare a client and it was really eye opening. and watching her go through what you made her go through made her really reconsider and think about 
what her loss was, and it was really eye-opening to me. I did apply. I was rejected. You know, it's the story of my life, constant rejection. Um, but, uh, you know, it was real interesting to watch. You have tried 30, 40 cases? Yeah, I think it's about 40 at this point. So I tell people in San Antonio, I really don't know anyone that's tried more ca- I mean, probably Cedillo, but like in our um, contemporary age group, you and Toscano, I mean, really are kind of the only two guys I know that have tried a bunch of cases. And Desi, who you tried a bunch of cases with. Um, any of them stand out? Any specific trials that you think, man, that was so eye-opening and or changed who I am as a lawyer? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of those moments sprinkled in there. Um, and I can think of a few. So Let's go with a few. Um, one of mine had to deal with a case... Uh, where my client was um, on, a, on an unrelated matter, something that transpired um, many months after the, uh, the crash in which he was injured and for which we were representing him, he was incarcerated in a federal um, penitentiary, a penitentiary up in New Mexico. And he was there on some, some pretty nasty charges, um, for, you know, if, if true, some pretty despicable behavior. And he was there, and so we had to go up to New Mexico to take his deposition, and we, we videoed it, but then they, uh, we ended up needing to call him live to trial. And there was no way to transport him from New Mexico to Texas. So he had to testify um, telephonically uh, during his case from the penitentiary in New Mexico. <laughs> And that, that hurts your case. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why, uh, not to get into to too many of those details, but yeah, it, it does hurt your case. Right. Um, and so the defense in that case was just salivating at the idea of a defendant being locked up in federal prison in the hopes that a jury would, ignore the law and ignore the facts of the crash for which the case was being tried and rather would punish him again for being a criminal. Uh, You know, we're all raised to uh, believe that, you know, there's right and there's wrong. And, and as a kid, I was raised to, you know, look up to police officers and to respect them and to look down on criminals. I mean, we played cops and robbers as a kid, right? I mean, that's just a thing. And um, so I believe that the, the defense lawyers and, and probably more specifically the insurance company that, that hired them that they were working for, when they found out this guy was incarcerated, they thought, well, great, no jury's going to want to award money to a criminal, even though the law says you focus just on the facts of the incident, right. not on the entirety of somebody's life. And so we knew we were going to be fighting against prejudice against criminals whether it was intentional by a juror or not we just we all come into the courtroom with our own internal biases i mean that's one of the things that we worked at the trial lawyers college is recognizing that we all have internal biases and then drawing them to the forefront so that we can call them what they are and not allow them to be driving our decisions in a case and so for this particular uh case we we fully expected that the jury would, you know, hear a lot about it, that they would, that the defense lawyers would take every opportunity they could to remind the jury that this guy was a criminal and to highlight that. Well, the 
the defense really wanted the jury to know why he was in prison, which the rules of evidence only allow in certain circumstances. And there are certain procedures you have to go through in order to be able to introduce that evidence. One being moral turpitude, which is still the, the only time you'll ever use that word is in our industry. Right. With that one thing. Right. And, and had he committed a crime of moral turpitude, which is basically theft or fraud, something involving deceit. Forgery. Right. Yeah. Then that the, the rules say, hey, that's fair game for a jury to know. Because if this guy has been convicted of the crime essentially of lying or deceit, then the jury deserves to know that because maybe they want to use that with, when they're weighing the credibility of his testimony in a case where he's testifying under oath to, to tell the truth. Well, he didn't commit crimes of moral turpitude or any of the other kind of crimes that would normally be admissible. Not a felony. But it was a felony, mm. um, which, you know, which is a sort of a catch-all. And the defense has to go through certain steps to be able to prove that it's admissible, which they had not done by the time of trial. So we properly moved to keep that out, basically because his criminal case was still under appeal mm. and it hadn't been finalized. Um, and it's only admissible when it's been finalized or, or exhausted the appeals. And so they didn't have proof that it had been finalized. They couldn't prove or disprove whether it was on appeal. So the judge said, well, you, you haven't met your burden, so you don't get to bring it in. So it wasn't to come in, but they were so desperate for the jury to know that he's a criminal of some kind, of any kind, to remind them that he's a criminal because they really wanted the jury to ignore their duty and to just punish him again, even though he'd already been punished. And so they brought up the fact that uh, while he was unemployed, he was acting as a shade tree mechanic. He would buy old beat-up cars, fix them up, and flip them for a profit. But he was doing it and making so little that he hadn't bothered to file taxes. So the, def the defense lawyers um, made sure to ask him in front of the jury about flipping these cars and about not filing his taxes. What he did, I think, unintentionally, was he allowed the jury then to believe that my guy was locked up for tax fraud, <laughs> which was a far lesser type of crime in, in, in severity and in nature than the actual crimes he was there for. <laughs> and I believe had he just, you know, stuck with what was available to him, um, otherwise, let the, their minds wander. The jury's minds would have gone to those deep, dark places. Yeah. You know, a guy's not able to come to trial because he's locked up in a federal pen in New Mexico. And all of a sudden your bad juror becomes your good juror because he was screwing the government and the hell with the government. Absolutely. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, nobody enjoys writing a check to the government or having those taxes taken out of their paycheck. And so the thought of somebody being locked up for, you know, quote unquote, cheating the government for taxes is a much more palatable crime than what he was actually charged with. And right. so they just couldn't let go of that um, idea of them wanting to, to make him look bad and have the jury punish him. And they ended up, I think, um, undercutting the way the jury felt about him and, and maybe even making them like him a little bit more because huh. they just couldn't get out of their yeah. way. They couldn't stop going down that path, even though they had been cut off by their failure to check those boxes. I, uh, the first case I ever tried, there was a issue about whether the sheriff called the defendant and told them, Hey, this is dangerous. So the, the sheriff knew it was dangerous. Did he ever relay that information? And the lawyer I'm trying it with at the time Big production, takes off his watch and goes and gives it to him and says, you see there's a second hand on there. I want you to I want you to tell me when it gets to, to 12, and then I want you to time me. So he sits there, and, and he gets to 12, and he says, okay, go. 
And the lawyer I'm with goes, you know, it's a big production. And he picks up a phone and five, 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 ring, ring. Hey, that's really dangerous. Don't let your people do that. Hung up. How much? 30 seconds. Okay, so it would have taken you 30 seconds to make this phone call. And then he gives him his watch back, and I look at it, and it's a Rolex. And I just remember thinking, if that sheriff had just been, wow, a Rolex, it would have just tanked. I mean, a $10,000 watch while you're doing this production in front of a country jury. I just remember thinking, that was a really dangerous move. I mean, luckily, the sheriff did not do that. But, you know, a sheriff in Guadalupe County probably hasn't handled a ton of Rolexes in his life. And I just remember thinking, what a unforced error. Yeah, so the, uh, uh, that's another thing that I've learned um, from the jurors who've been kind enough to stick around after my trials and share information with mm-hmm. me um, is that jurors, they pay attention to things that you wouldn't otherwise expect, um, which is one of the reasons why we, we do focus groups, right? We, we look at a case as a lawyer from a certain angle you know, from the law or because we know and like our clients. So we kind of lose the force for the trees sometimes. And when you bring in regular folks to just give you a fresh set of eyes and a new, different perspective, you find out there are things that are important to folks that aren't important to lawyers that you need to be mindful of. Um, and so what I learned from talking to the jurors after one of my early trials is they pay attention to what we wear. Yeah. Um, I, I think I started that case, I might have done Vordire in just a sports coat in, in like slacks or khakis rather than a full-on regular suit that first day because we had a long pre-trial and I wasn't sure if we were going to get to the jury and so I just, I wasn't in a suit. Um, I mean, I said a coat and tie, but it was different and one of the jurors said to me, he's like, you know, I wasn't sure about, you know, the way you were dressed that first day, but your suits got a lot better as the trial went on. And I just thought, man, they really, you know, and I think it's because there's downtime during a trial that you don't think of as a young lawyer if you haven't tried cases. And the jurors, sometimes they're sitting there waiting for the judge and the lawyers to do their thing. And they just find ways to fill their time. And they start looking around and paying attention to those little details that. Lanier talks about that. He said at one of his trials, the jury came up after the verdict and said, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how rich you were because we saw you wear 18 different suits. And so he said he went and had 10 of the exact same color. And he says he wears the exact same looking suit every single day of trial now because of that. And that was a deal at Watts. You know, uh, Michael um, is not into dressing nice and Hunter was, and you would see them argue over things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, I've, I've read papers about um, studies that have been done about the color of the suits you wear and uh, and things like that and whether you wear a darker suit or a lighter suit and maybe which part of the trial it's better and maybe it depends on what kind of a witness you're cross-examining. Do you that get day. caught up in that stuff? I just don't. I don't invest in it heavily, but I do take note of it because I know that you know the research that they do comes from somewhere. The data is, is, is real, and so it's just good to be mindful of it. I won't let it... Um, but a South Texas jury process. is going to be different than if you if they did that in California or did it Mississippi. I mean, it's just a different world, I think. I mean, in uh, is it Cameron or Hidalgo during the summer, they'll let you try a case in a Guayavera. I mean, it's just a different, you know, mentality down there. My whole thing is somebody told me don't don't let the way you dress detract. So don't wear anything flashy. Don't do anything that's going to make people pay attention to anything other than what you're doing. Wear a white shirt, a simple tie. 
that that's it. So, like I said, I, I won't let it completely um, dominate my thought process in a in a case, but I try to keep it simple. Um, I will wear um, suits within a very kind of narrow spectrum of color. Uh, my shirts are always just plain white, and uh, you know, no 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 cuffs cufflinks, um, no no kind of distracting ties. Very simple, plain, and I, I don't just Tabasco I, ties, right? <laughs> something like that. I, I, I don't want the jury distracted by my clothes. I would rather them focused on the argument that I'm making or the case that I'm presenting and not what I'm wearing. You and I both come from similar upbringing, father, coach, mom, you know, teacher, administrator, and some, to some extent, um, you know, bigger town than me, but kind of similar back then it wasn't as big. Um, is there anything you think, and you also played college sports and you were much more successful at it than I was, but anything sort of you think team sports has taught you about our industry? Yeah, I think so. Uh, for sure. I mean, there's obviously, um, what I have learned and come to appreciate is the, the, the benefit of having others around to support you in what you're doing, whether it is the stuff in trial, which is a, which is an easier sort of um, allegory to that, just the teamwork that can go into a trial, especially if you have a, a larger trial team, but even in the office, right? I mean, there's just something to be said about uh, folks appreciating others' skill sets, knowing where your strengths are, but maybe also where your shortcomings are, appreciating that others can um, either fill that gap for you or help to elevate your level of play, so to speak. Um, I really enjoy the sort of uh, gathering of minds to bounce ideas, to um, have somebody maybe watch you do a practice run through a, a, a Vordier statement or something like that where you get feedback and it's it's not just about being on an island, even though, you know, lawyers who do what we do often advertise and it's just the one lawyer in the shot and it's talking about his accolades and his, you know, skins on the wall and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is um, there's a whole team behind that lawyer. That lawyer is not successful without other folks. And I certainly don't think that I have a monopoly and all the best ideas. And so one of the things that I've enjoyed about um, moving into the office that I'm in now, uh, where, where you and I and another lawyer share space, is that we get to um, sort of act like a virtual firm. Even though we all have our own small firms, we still are willing to share ideas and, and help each other improve our game um, just by sharing shared experiences or giving tips from hard lessons learned, things like that. I agree with all that you said. Uh, one thing I have sort of uh, noticed in my practice in hiring people um, is two things. One, I think growing up in sports, um, I don't know if it's because of our fathers or, or being coaches, but just sort of that sports world is getting punched in the mouth is not as affecting to me as it is to other people. Like it is just, I mean, I'm probably the puncher more often and I am very comfortable in those waters. And I think a lot of that has to do with sort of you know, you're humbled in sports. Sometimes you're the best. Sometimes you're the worst. Sometimes you embarrass yourself. Sometimes you don't. So I think that's kind of one of those lessons, which I, I think kind of gives, gives way to what Javier Espinoza and I talked about, which is grit, like our industry, you need to have grit. Um, and then the other thing that's really stood out to me and really particularly in the hiring 
is something I heard my dad talk about, but I didn't really know, which was coachability. I mean, very few people I have found seem interested. Let me rephrase this. Too many people I have run across seem disinterested in learning a different way. Uh, I think a lot of people have kind of just accepted that this is the way I either learned it or I think it should be. And there's very little, um, you know, acceptance of a different way. And I think that has to do with coachability and particularly for me with hiring. I mean, even when people work for me, I'm paying their bills. You know, you'd think that that would be a little easier. Instead, it seems offensive to some people and nobody in particular, but it just stood out as, you know, we grew up being told be coachable. That was a skill. That was a, that was a positive part of you if you were coachable. And I think it's an age thing to where independent thought trumps coachability in a way that's unproductive occasionally. Does that make sense what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we look as, as a trial lawyer, you need a certain level of confidence and, uh, self-assuredness and things like that to be able to do what we do, right? And you're going to stand up in front of a group of folks and um, try to help them uh, understand what your client's plight is and to ultimately do what you're asking them to do at the end of the case. That takes a level of moxie for sure, but it shouldn't come at the cost of being willing to admit that we can all improve in some area of our life, whether it's personal or professional, nobody's perfect. I know it's a cliche saying, but it's true. And there's always room for improvement. So um, I do find that a lot of people are, are, are set in their ways and are unwilling to learn because they feel like, well, it's, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I've had success. So why not just keep doing it? And that I think belies the, the reality of times change, people change, uh, you know, over, um, arching views of the public can change. Like what worked for a jury in the 1980s is not going to work. Oh, you watch like some of those old school guys like Jamail. I got to see do a few things. And I just remember thinking how hokey it seemed. It was so successful then, but then 20 years of the insurance industry saying that it was all bullshit has started to affect people. So, you know, I mean, that, that sort of changed things. But I mean, just going to that Lanier seminar, which was a three day seminar, it's changed the way I practice law in total, in a, in a way for the better. And I think that kind of comes from sort of the way we were raised. Uh, I ask everybody this, what are some of your favorite things to do task wise, uh, in the practice law? I love to get into a real meaty expert deposition, uh, probably because of my ego. I think I'm going to be smarter than that guy today. And it's fun to be challenged to beat somebody in their own expertise. Doesn't always work, but it's a challenge that I find really fun and enjoyable. What are some of your favorite things to do in, in the practice of law? I think that a cross-examination, whether it, really whether it be an expert or a corporate representative um, or even that uh, occasional instance where you get a defendant who uh, maybe is a professional of some sort or has an, has an education that uh, or maybe has just watched too many bad lawyer movies and shows on TV, but comes in thinking they they know better than you. Where they're not sympathetic. Right. right. And then getting to slowly break down what this this position that they've built up in their mind and 
these delusions of grandeur they came in where they were going to one-up the trial lawyer in his own game and then just kind of pick it apart when you when you sort of shine a light on for what it really is and to watch it fall apart and then to watch them and their body language change when they go from being so overconfident to being sort of crestfallen and realizing that they were uh, maybe out of their depth is uh, can be entertaining. If they'll do that. Right. And, and then sometimes it's a bigger gift if they don't. Right. Because if they dig their heels in and refuse to acknowledge something that is blatant and obvious, then it just makes them look so absurd that any audience to that testimony is going to completely ignore them or lose faith in anything that they say because they're so obviously ignoring something that is apparent. How about in trial? Do you like Vordar, open, closed, direct, cross? I think, so this kind of go, flies in the face of, of what I was um, taught at the Trial Lawyers College, which is a case is, uh, is won in Vordar, and, and it should be over by the end of opening statement if you do your job right. And I think that's probably true, but I feel like I enjoy the closing argument more, even though ostensibly the jury's a lot of times made up their mind already by that point of the trial, um, just because I feel like my my skill set um, plays well for closing. Um, so that's probably my favorite part. What do you find difficult? So for me, I, I still think one of the hardest things to do in our industry is direct a treating doctor because you don't know what they're going to say. They're not there to like play along. They're oftentimes very sure of themselves. They're not real interested about your standard of care or what you have to prove. I find those to be very difficult. Still to this day, I do, and I've done a lot of them. What are some of the things you find difficult in our practice that maybe a young lawyer's listening to and thinking, well, shit, 20-year lawyers, lawyers find this hard. I shouldn't be too upset about, about it. Well, I think you touched on one of them for certain because you've got a non-captive witness that you don't sit around and practice their testimony with and you don't go over it. And so you're right. There's a bit of a, a wild card aspect to it that can be um, challenging and certainly keeps you on your toes when they start to go off on tangents and things like that. I still find a challenging um, aspect of a trial to be putting on the testimony of either a client um, or a family member who is just the type of person who's not very open, who finds it difficult to talk about difficult or embarrassing or traumatic things and to truly let down their guard and um, and let the jury into their world. And I get it. Um, you know, I the way I grew up uh, and the folks that I grew up around, you know, we weren't, you know, it's sharing personal private things in front of strangers was a no-no, right? Um, sharing too much emotion was not really expected and it was even frowned upon at times. And so to talk about very personal or private or emotional things in front of strangers can be hard. However, you know, when we sue folks, oftentimes in these injury cases, we're not just looking for repayment of medical bills or repayment of, you know, lost wages and things like that. But we're also looking for other things that the law provides for, um, which are what we call the non-economic damages, right? So the, um, the pain and suffering, the mental anguish, the impairment, things like that. And oftentimes those types of damages reveal themselves in very private and personal ways that folks don't want to talk about. And 
they will refuse to do it unless you can really work with them ahead of time. And sometimes even when you work with them ahead of time, it's hard to get them to truly open up. However, direct examinations are just difficult. They are. They're boring for the jury. I think normally they're difficult. You can't really, you just kind of have to, even if you've worked with them, sometimes you just kind of hope for the best. Right. And, and so uh, a lot of the work that, that, well, that I did with you and your client on that case that you mentioned earlier was trying to help break down some of those barriers of being, um, trying to keep things private, which you normally would keep private, but then um, understanding and realizing the time and the place to disclose them and the importance of doing so and just trying to get them comfortable with it. Um, one of the, the sort of tenets of, of that is that we, we try to, uh, from the Travelers College teachings, um, one of the ways we help our clients to get over some of those barriers is we start by sharing something private and personal of our, of our own. And by showing them, like, this is a safe space, we're going to talk about some things, but I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm unwilling to do myself. And so we start by sharing some personal private things and just kind of letting them know, like, this is a place where we're going to talk about this stuff. And then, you know, not everything they reveal is going to be later told to a jury, right? right. You, you kind of work through a bunch of material, so to speak, and then you figure out what is necessary to achieve your purpose. Because it's not about embarrassing anybody. It's not about... Um, putting on a show for the sake of putting on a show. It's about finding the meat and only putting forth what you have to because it's not about manipulating anybody, but it's about making sure they really understand what somebody's been through. And and I find that to be challenging oftentimes, um, especially when there's a language barrier and I'm doing it through mm -hmm. a translator. That makes it even harder for sure. Way harder. I mean, the worst cases are when you spend a day prepping somebody and then they get there and just nothing y'all discussed is done. I mean, that's always a great frustration. Oh, it's, there's been a, there's been a number of those conversations in the hallway of the courthouse after my client or whoever gets off the stand. And it's like, what happened up there? Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, they get nervous, which is understandable. Um, but it's still, it's they're going to revert to what's natural for them. Yes. I mean, um, what advice do you have for young lawyers? You know, I remember whenever I was straight out of law school and I went and, worked for Watts, but I mean, I just cold called and went for a job that wasn't listed and that he had never hired. And why not? You know, I took a swing. Um, that's always my advice for young lawyers. Say yes. Uh, you get a chance to take a depot that is way out of your league. Do it. Prepare, be nervous, sweat, go do it. Uh, what's your advice for young lawyers? I think that's, that's great advice actually is take advantage of opportunities or maybe even better know when to, um, know how to notice an opportunity, um, be looking for them. Uh, I've had uh, my first depot that I took as a lawyer uh, solo. Uh, I think I had an hour's notice before the depot was going to start um, to not only prepare for the depot, but then to get halfway across town to the depot site. And I just said, why not yeah. do it? And I think that um, taking advantage of those opportunities Go and and uh, watch a, a good lawyer doing lawyer stuff if you can. I mean, I know young lawyers sometimes are are strapped for time because they are expected to be in the office and, and be you know visible to their employer and, and all that kind of stuff. But let them know. Don't just disappear on them. But let them know. Hey, I, there's a case being tried by this good lawyer, and I want to go watch part of yeah. it because 
it's not that you're going to go and you're going to see something and then you're going to go mimic it because not everything stylistically is for everybody. You might watch it and say, man, that worked for that guy, but that's not for me. And or now just to I see what the final, pro- like the final product is supposed to be. Maybe it's not your style, but just to know like the tone and timber in the process. I mean, it's so important. Yeah, I find that is helpful uh, to young lawyers and then to non-lawyer staff in law offices to sometimes just see how this issue plays out in real life and in real time. Uh, sometimes we get lost in the, the piles of paper and the formality of, you know, doing filling out these forms or submitting these documents. And we don't really uh, understand how they play out in a trial until we see somebody argue over the format right. and how it was done. And was this detail forgotten and overlooked? Because if it was, it can be the single little detail that determines whether something's admissible or not. I always try to give context to everybody in the office because I think it's important that people know why they're checking a box because – that box means this, and that's what it means at the end product. But my first depot I took, Guy Watts calls me. I think I'd been there one week, and he says, hey, I need you to take a depot. It was the accident reconstructionist for a double-death tire case in Johnson City. Um, it was the DPS accident reconstructionist, so even more difficult than like an expert. I spend 40, 50 hours getting ready for this depot. I mean, everything. He won't talk to me, no advice, whatever. And then we're driving to the depot. Well, what's your plan? And so I'm kind of walking it through what I'm going to do. And he says something along the lines of, yeah, I wouldn't do any of that stuff, but whatever. And no advice. I mean, it's not like, well, I would change that. Just I would toss the whole thing. So anyway, I go take the depot. He didn't really have anything to add. He never tells me how you do it different. And I look back and I think, well, I still do it my way. Like, you know, but he just dropped that bomb on me like an hour before the depot. You know, that was... Very sweet of him. Yeah, so my my depot worked out pretty well. It was a uh, it was a food poisoning case, and I was deposing uh, one of the the plaintiffs who had uh, who had suffered food poisoning, and you know I had had a few medical records, and that was about it to review. And so I spent you know I went online, I was looking on I don't know WebMD or I don't know what, but I was yeah. looking up these different diagnoses and the symptoms and all this stuff because it was a bunch of medical jargon that I wasn't familiar with. And um, I just went in there and said, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna ask as many questions as I can think of to make sure that I've covered every potential base because I have a, a decent grasp of this from whatever I could learn in an hour, but certainly not a full grasp. And I don't want to leave a stone unturned. And so I was very, very thorough. And the, um, the doctor that the, the lawyer I was working for who had me to the depot, the doctor that he hired in the case to review it, um, reviewed the depot uh, and, and called over to the office specifically to thank the lawyer who took it for doing such a good nice. job because he said, I've never seen this thorough of a depot before. And, uh, and so that word trickled back down to me. They're like, Hey, whatever you did, it worked because our expert called back and thanked us for doing such a good job. And it was the best depot transcript I've ever read. And I thought, well, if that's my first one, I guess it's <laughs> at least I'll know um, that, that there's nothing um, bad that can come out of just being overly thorough, I think in most cases. And so that's kind of how I, I think that's a good it. rule of thumb. Uh, my depots got a lot shorter whenever I had to start cutting them for trial and realizing I don't want to cut my own six hour depot. So it changed the way I did things. Um, For sure. You're a 20-year lawyer? 18? 19? Uh, what year is this? 2021? This will be, it'll be 17 years this year when I, in the fall. Oh, you're not that far ahead of me. Yeah. So I'm 
You were 05? Uh, 04. I was 07. Okay. Uh, what do you see next? You've you've kind of branched out on your own. You've been bouncing around sort of defense plaintiffs. Uh, now you've got kind of clear head going forward. Any types of cases, any sort of change of path, are you ready to become a mediator? I mean, what's next for Damon? So for After me, your reign of Satla has ended yeah, as well. Yeah, after my reign of terror is over, um, then, you know, it's going to be really focusing for a while on just building – you know, my own practice that I started recently, uh, got us a trial law and sort of just sort of honing that and getting it to where I want it to be for, for now. Um, I am, you know, whatever certified by the state or I have the, whatever the statutes require to be a mediator, but I don't, I was kind of joking about that. I didn't know. I don't that. necessarily think that's something I'm going to do anytime soon. It's I would be terrible at it. It's something that I think I could do maybe down the road. You have a personality for it. And I guess people have told me that, which is why only reason why I think that. Otherwise, I'm not really sure. But I'm just not sure that I'm there yet. I think I want to focus more on uh, trying more cases and um, just building my own practice for now. So, kind of what I'm doing right now is where I think I want to be for the for the short term, for sure. And you know, I've talked about it for young lawyers. You'd be a perfect person for them to call to, you know, team up with for try try a case with them, teach them the ropes. You've tried more cases than almost anybody I know in this city. Um, so that'd be a really helpful, uh, uh, option for some young lawyers who are going to trial for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a number of, uh, younger lawyers that I've spoken to who are kind of doing, I guess what I'm doing now, although I'm doing it a little bit uh, further down my career line, but trying to start their own practice or, or they have begun to build a practice, but they've never really been in the courtroom. And I tell them, look, you need a, you need a trial partner. Let me know. And, uh, I'm happy to walk you through my process and to help you um, learn from my mistakes because certainly there's no need to reinvent the wheel on a lot of this stuff. And uh, I, I, I learn from working with other lawyers, so I enjoy it. It's not just about sticking my nose into somebody else's case. It's really I, I learn by trying cases with other lawyers. Every case that I've tried with a different lawyer, I've learned something from each lawyer that I've tried a case with. And, uh, yeah. and every trial. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, th I think I'm getting better with each trial. I always learn something new about either myself or the practice of trying cases or all of the above. And, uh, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now is talking to other lawyers who either who have cases like this but have never tried them or are still kind of green, a little green and say, hey, let's, let's try some cases together. I enjoy it. I think that I'll learn something. I think they'll learn something. And uh, hopefully at the end of the day, we'll, we'll achieve something good for their client. So what's your office number if somebody listens to this and wants to give you a call? Uh, my office number is 210-625-5000. Email, that if they want to email you, what's the, the go-to email? Garza G-A-R-Z-A, at gmail.com. All right. Well, Damon, thank you for doing this. I will see you every day because we office just down the hall from each other. But I appreciate it. And sure. good job on your SATLA rain even in spite of the fact that it was marred by um covid yeah so thanks damon appreciate You're welcome. it welcome thank you